following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you virtually. Um, I'm going to be reading from John 20, the pre-sermon liturgy. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not touch me because I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Well, thank you, Scott, for uh, doing that rather long reading all the way from Syracuse today. Um, If you can't tell, we're racing to get through the book of John here, (laughs) doing more uh, more content than usual maybe today. Um, Actually, before we get into the text there from that, part of John chapter 20, I want to give you um, one quick sort of pre-sermon announcement, which is 
about our ministry teams. And um, as we are continuing the process of reopening and starting to resume ministries that were um, maybe put on pause or done in only a limited way during the pandemic, we are looking to add a handful of people to some of our tech teams. So I know a lot of you are technologically inclined. Um, I am speaking to you if you are, but even if you're not, please don't tune out because we will be happy to teach you how to do some of this stuff and you don't really need a ton of technological uh, knowledge for all of them. Some of them you might need a little bit. So specifically, I know that we are still looking for some people to run our visuals, which means you get to sit up in the cool tech loft up there um, and uh, uh, just change what gets projected on the screen. We're uh, looking for a person or two who could run sound. This is one of those things that would require some training, and it would be ideal if you had some experience, but um, if you are inclined toward that, we would certainly teach you how to do that. We are looking for another volunteer or two to... Um, host our Zoom meetings that happen during worship. So those of you in the room, it can be done from the room. It could probably also be done from home. If you're an always on Zoom person, I think you could still do this task. And then lastly, we are looking for someone who would be willing to edit our podcast, which is something that Ken Tryon has done capably for many years and is ready to uh, step away from. And uh, so if you are able or interested even in doing any of those things, even if you think you might not know how to, um, I would love to hear from you. Now, there's a bunch of different ministry team leaders who will need to have your information. Rather than try to tell you who to go to for each of those things, I'm just going to tell you to come to me. Um, so you can talk to me right after service. I would love to talk to you in person about any of this stuff. Or you can email me, scott at artisanchurch.com, and I will forward your email on to the right person with an introduction uh, contained. Um, so um, I know that those folks are, uh, who are involved in those teams are very eager to have some some new uh, people involved. Let me know if you can help out. So as I hinted a few minutes ago, uh, we are getting toward the end of John's Gospel. We're wrapping up this uh, decade-long now journey through the Gospel of John that has happened in bits and pieces over the years. And in this last section of John's Gospel, we've been looking at um, those events that happened in the final days that Jesus spent on earth. So stories about how he was betrayed, how he was arrested and convicted, how he was crucified. And today's story, as you heard uh, just a minute ago, begins uh, with the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And then it goes on to tell the stories, begin to tell the stories of how Jesus appeared to some of his followers after the resurrection. And I think that these last few chapters of John have so much for us. Um, because you can, you can feel the narrative arc coming to its conclusion. Right? You know how if you're, you're watching your favorite TV series, you're streaming something on Netflix or HBO or whatever, as you get to the, like the, the last few episodes, you can sort of feel things ratcheting up, and you're like, oh, what's going to happen? It's going to be something good. Um, it's sort of like that in this gospel. You can, you can feel this narrative um, sort of ratcheting up in tension and, and intensity. Um, Jesus begins to speak with so much urgency. Uh, if you were here last week, you heard me talk about how, for me, having recently been at the funeral of a friend and mentor, it really made me think about how poignant someone's final words or final wishes can be. And we saw the story of Jesus on the cross uh, expressing his final words and wishes to uh, his mother and to his friend John, connecting them together in a new family unit, 
built by their common love for him. So there's a similar urgency in Jesus' appearances to his friends and disciples after the resurrection. There's there's an almost palpable sense um, of Jesus knowing that these are some of the last things he's going to say to these people in person. There's a sense of him kind of you can sort of feel him wanting them to remember this, this moment that they spend with him, to remember these words that they speak to, or he speaks to them. And what I see just in these two encounters is such a range of emotional and intellectual responses to Jesus' appearance. Um, people who are in very different states of heart and mind, both before and after Jesus appears to them. And so I think there's actually probably something for everybody in these stories um, and in the stories that will follow because there's a few more appearances that we'll have to look at um, after today. So I will encourage you today to get your Bibles out or your Bible apps out or to search Google for John 20 (laughs) or to grab one of the red Bibles and turn to page 882. Um, it, It might be of benefit to you to be able to refer back to that as I talk about some of these next things. While people are looking up John 20, um, I'll say a quick word to some of you in the room because I know there are bound to be, to be people in the room today who really struggle to believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus. And this whole story is predicated on the fact that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and rose from the dead and began to supernaturally appear to people um, who knew him. All right, so if you struggle to believe in a literal resurrection, that is okay. It's a pretty uh, unbelievable thing when you think about it. Right? Those of us who have been in church forever are like, ah, I dealt with that years ago. It's not a problem. Um, some of us, anyway. Uh, maybe it comes and goes for you. Some days it's easier to believe than others, and I sure can relate to that. I guess I would say um, try to be at peace with it. This story, I hope, these stories, I hope, have something to offer you, even if you struggle with that type of belief. And then maybe make sure to come back next week, because next week the entire sermon is dedicated to Thomas, who was the disciple who absolutely refused to believe, just because his friends said that Jesus was alive, until he could physically touch Jesus and see him. So um, we will do that next week. So there's two appearances that take place in today's passage. The first one is to Mary Magdalene, and then the second one is to the other disciples, And I'm just going to tell you right up front what we're looking for as we look at these two parts of this story. The first thing is I'm going to talk a little bit about the emotional state of the person to whom Jesus appears. And then I'm going to talk about what Jesus says to them while they're in that state. And then thirdly, I'm going to talk about the the task or commission that Jesus gives them. And then, as always, because why would we bother reading this if we weren't going to do this step, I'm going to ask you to begin to work to see yourself in these stories, maybe in one or more of these characters, to imagine Jesus speaking to you, and I'm going to imagine Jesus speaking to me. We're going to imagine Jesus teaching us, challenging us, healing us, commissioning us. And we're going to begin to think about how we would respond, and in fact, how we will respond, hopefully, to the actual presence of Jesus in our uh, life and experience today. So... We'll start with Mary Magdalene. In John's Gospel, this woman, Mary Magdalene, has the wonderful privilege of being the first person to proclaim the resurrection. 
First, she does it in a way uh, where she doesn't understand what has happened. She's proclaiming the resurrection, but she doesn't quite know it yet. She says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She goes and tells Peter and John, and then they have a little foot race back to the tomb. And John's like, I'm not going to brag or anything, but the other disciple who wasn't Peter got there first. <laughs> you got to love John. So first she proclaims the resurrection without even knowing it. She's like, they've taken the body away. And then afterward, after Jesus appears to her, she proclaims the resurrection again, still bewildered, but in a much more confident way. She's sure of at least one thing. She says, I have seen the Lord. But look back at verse 11, if you have your Bible there in front of you, and you can see the state that she's in emotionally at the time between these two proclamations, between the one where she's doesn't know what's going on, and, and Jesus' appearance to her. What is she doing in that moment in verse 11? She's weeping. She's crying. I don't know when the last time was that you had a good cry. Have you ever wept specifically because Jesus seemed really absent Have you ever shed tears at the loss of certainty? The loss of stability? The loss of that sense of assurance that God is close to you? If you have, you should know that you're not alone. One of the great heroines of the faith joins her tears with yours. One of the things that's so special and important about our sacred scriptures is that they give us real people. People who mess things up. People who are brash and bold and then have to eat crow. People who don't know what's going on at all. And yes, people who are weeping at the loss of God's presence that seemed like it was never going to be gone. And if you look at what happens next, it comes up in verse, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. I'll take care of the body for you. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And then she turned and said to him in Hebrew, it's actually, she said it in Aramaic, but when it says in Hebrew, it's just like the spoken language of the Hebrew people at the time, which was uh, Aramaic, which is why it's Rabunai, not Rabbi. In either case, it means teacher. Did you catch before I started to get all um, like opaque about weird language stuff? <laughs> what's going on in that story, which is that she did not recognize Jesus. This person she was literally sobbing over the loss of comes up to her and she doesn't know who he is. Why is that? How could that possibly be? If you were directing a film of this uh, encounter, I wonder what you would do with that. Would Jesus' appearance have been different? Would she have been not looking because her head was in her hands because she was sobbing? 
so often, especially in moments of despair, like the one Mary's experiencing here, I think we fail to see that God is actually right there with us. Not just with us, but actually seeking us out. And I find it especially beautiful that Mary recognizes Jesus when he does what? When he speaks her name. By the way, this is a whole theme across the the Gospels. You see versions of this in each one of the Gospels which is that the disciples of Jesus don't recognize him at first, and there's various things that he does that make them recognize him, right? So one, which I love in, in Luke's gospel, they, they don't know who he is until he breaks bread and offers it to them, and they, they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. Hopefully we will recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread or in the uh, peeling of the cellophane later. <laughs> By the way, the leadership team has asked me to begin the process of returning us to having actual bread, at least as an option. We'll have the self-contained things in the future always, I think. But um, if you're looking forward to real bread, just know that it's coming back soon. <laughs> so they recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. They recognize Jesus in the naming of a name. They recognize Jesus later in this gospel in him giving them food that reminds them of another miracle he had done earlier in the book. So, spoiler alert, he gives them bread and fish on the beach. And I think I can just imagine them going, oh, I remember when that teacher we used to love did the thing with the bread and the... It's Jesus! <laughs> I think they're so silly sometimes. They're just a bunch of silly geese, just like us. Can you imagine right now that, that God is nearby to you? especially if you have felt that the opposite is true recently, maybe you can imagine that God is actually right nearby, and specifically that God wants to get your attention. And I wonder if it might be a different answer for each one of us to this next question, which is what is it that you would want Jesus to do or say to get your attention Don't rush too quick to to assume that he's going to do the thing that you want him to do. (laughs) Right? What did Mary Mary wanted a corpse to rebury? And instead she got a gardener who knew her name. I might tweet that later. (laughs) Mary wanted a corpse to rebury, and instead she got a living gardener who knew her name. What's the thing that you want? God to do? What is it you would like Jesus to do to make himself known to you? You might get the second half of that without getting the first half, you know? So then, what does Jesus ask of her? It's in verse 17. He says to her, pay close attention, go to my brothers and say to them this. Say to them this very specific thing. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary goes to them and she says, I've seen the Lord. Not quite, not quite what Jesus said to say, but it got the job done. See, she knew what she knew, 
And she shared it, and that was plenty to get their attention. And don't worry, Mary, if you can hear my voice. (laughs) I don't know what he was talking about either. When he said, uh, tell my brothers that I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. We see the story of the ascension uh, later in some of the Gospels. But I wonder what she thought she was supposed to carry. What message would this, could this possibly mean, right? For us, who have read some of the New Testament, we can think, oh, it's a reference to the, the ascension. It's got to be. To Mary, who only recently realized that the gardener was Jesus, she didn't know what was coming next. And so what she did was she went to Jesus' other disciples and she's like, I've seen the Lord. And it worked. Got the ball rolling. So have you ever felt like you can't share your faith with other people because you don't fully understand it yourself? Like, what if they ask me a question? It's okay to say what you know and not say what you don't know. Don't hear that wrong. I might might be able to say that better. It's okay to say what you do know and be honest about what you don't know. It's not that you have to hide the parts you don't know. That's not what I was suggesting at all. What you should probably not do is make up the parts you don't know. What you should probably not do is pretend you understand the parts you don't understand. But if you have seen the Lord, whatever that might look like for you, you are given permission and, I think, encouragement to share that with somebody to the best of your ability and to within the limits of how much you understand it. All right. So that's Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene. Let's look at that second appearance, which is to the, the group of his disciples. Now, it's not all of them. It's most of them. And it starts in verse... Um, 19. So Mary's emotional state was that she was weeping. She was very sad. What about the other disciples? What was their emotional state? Verse 19. They were afraid. Right? It says they were, the door was locked for the fear of the Jews. Now, you know I'm always going to give this disclaimer because I think it's really important. There's a lot of anti-Semitism that comes out of the Christian tradition. And when it says, for fear of the Jews, it does not mean that all Jewish people are supposed to be um, feared, right? Or that they're going to do something um, anti-Christian or something like that. The language here in that gospel I don't think means that at all, but it has been appropriated to mean that at certain times in Christian history. So we're going to just acknowledge that and uh, go forward in the text, um, recognizing that that's something we should be aware of. Right? And just like any other kind of xenophobia, we, we, should, we should be kind of digging down in our own spirits and souls to, to wonder how true that might be for us. Right? But the point today is that the disciples were afraid. So scared they were that they had locked themselves into a room. Have you ever been so frightened or worried that you close yourself off from the world? I mean, I hope that it hasn't happened to you, but in a group this size, it might be possible that some of you have been so scared for something actually about to happen to you that you have literally locked the doors of your house or your room for your own safety. 
But I would suggest or, or surmise, I would guess it, uh, that, that for almost all of us, there's at least a metaphorical version of locking ourselves in the room because of the fears that we have. Maybe specifically because of fears of what other people will do to us. Maybe you've used some other mechanism to block out people, family, friends. And maybe it's not evil people. Maybe it's people who, who are trying to care for you and you are not ready to receive care from them. So what does Jesus do and say to these terrified disciples in the end of verse 9? First of all, he came and stood among them. <laughs> so apparently resurrected Jesus has a skeleton key or something. He beat the, the boss in the video game and got the key, and now he's going back. Now he's going back. I played too much Zelda or something when I was a kid. Now he's going back, and he can get right into that locked door. Listen, Jesus will not be locked out. You can try to lock out your friends and family. You might have some success, but you cannot lock out Jesus. Believe me, I tried once. <laughs> when everything else fell away, all that was left for me for a while was Jesus. I tried to get rid of him too, and he just wouldn't let me go. What does he say to them in this moment when he appears to them in their terror? He says, peace be with you. He says it two times because sometimes you need to be told peace be with you more than once because the first one doesn't stick. He offers them peace when they're afraid. We see this time and time again in Scripture, by the way. Jesus says it. Uh, the voice of God says it. The angels say it. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Peace be with you. It seems like if there's one message that we should apply to ourselves, it's that we should not be afraid, and yet we have constructed not only entire lives, but an entire system of understanding Christian faith that is based on fear. If you were given a gospel at any point in your life that starts out with you having to be afraid of something, I would say to you that was a false gospel. There's never a time when Jesus appears to these people and says, you should be very scared right now. You know who he says should be scared? The, the self-righteous people. Those are the ones who he says you should be scared. But never the little children, never the wounded, never the vulnerable, never the persecuted, never the confused. To those people, he says, do not be afraid. So if you, if you are struggling to hold on to the faith that you had from childhood, or from earlier in your life, it might be because it started with fear. And guess what? You don't have to hold on to that one. You can let that gospel go. There's a more beautiful one coming right down the road behind it. So, he says to them, do not be afraid. And then he says this really strange thing. This is in verse 23. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Fair enough. And then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What a strange thing to say. And what on earth does it mean? I will be honest with you and tell you I'm not 100% sure what it means. I tell you what I used to think it means. 
I used to think that it means that somehow in the hereafter, we who are Jesus' faithful followers get to be part of judging people. We get to say, along with Jesus, your sins are forgiven and your sins are not. I thought of it only as an eternal responsibility that we're given because I was very preoccupied with eternity. These days, I think it's much simpler than that, much more immediate than that, and actually, possibly counterintuitively, much weightier than that, much heavier than that. Here's what I think it means. I think it means that we, each one of us, have the power by how we respond when someone sins against us to retain or to release their guilt. So if someone harms us, we can choose to hold it against them. We have the power to do so, and the power is real. It will be held against them. But we also have the power to release them, to forgive those sins. And that power is also real. See, in either case, our decision to wield the power of forgiveness or the power of retention will change their lives. See, this is the other thing that's different about how I understand this teaching today versus years ago. I used to think it was all about me. How many of you think it's all about you? I used to think it was like, that's something you have to work out. Because if you don't forgive, then you won't be forgiven and all those things. And you have to be concerned with your individual soul. And part of that means being willing to forgive other people when they harm you. All of that is true as far as it goes, but guess what? My power is not just to affect my own life, but to affect yours. Your power is not just to affect your life, but to affect the lives of other people. And one of the ways you do that is by choosing to forgive them or choosing not to. And that will change their life. So I think in many ways it would be preferable to keep it all in the realm of the spiritual, to have to postpone that stuff for the sweet by and by of some afterlife when we don't have to worry about the pain of it all because it's extremely painful to try to forgive someone who has sinned against us. But then it all comes back around because this is the thing, this earthly power to choose whom to forgive or not Maybe it does have eternal consequences because it sets a course not only in our own lives, but in the life of the person whose sins were forgiven or weren't. If you've ever done harm to someone and been forgiven, do you, do you recognize the power in that, in receiving that, in the, in the, the capacity it gives you to move on in your life versus if someone's holding something against you, how that hardens your own heart, how that cuts the wound deeper with each passing day, how it becomes more difficult for you to forgive someone else the next time it's asked of you. This is one of the last things Jesus said to these disciples. Be wary of the power that you hold to forgive someone's sins or to retain them. Which one is it going to be? So, we have two stories of Jesus appearing to disciples after 
the resurrection. We have a few more, as I said, to look at in the next section of the gospel. But can you see now why I say that these stories of Christ's appearances have a weight to them, they have an urgency to them, that there's something that we should pay careful attention to? So let me ask you the questions that I told you in advance I was going to ask you, which is where have you seen yourself in these stories? Do you think of yourself more like Mary, weeping at the absence of God? Or are you more like that other group of disciples, locked away in your fear? Do you need Jesus to reveal himself to you by gently saying your name? By humanizing you? Or do you need Jesus to reveal himself to you by busting through the locked door of your existence, breaking down the walls of protection you've built around yourself? What would Jesus say to you if he were to appear to you today? What would he ask of you? Do you think Jesus would tell you to go and get some others, to share the good news with them that you barely even understand? Or would Jesus be more likely, in your case, to call you to the frightening responsibility of releasing the sins of those who have wounded you? By the way, in either case, go and tell somebody something you barely understand or do the frightening work of releasing their sins. If there's a specific person or group of people who come to mind right now, God's kind of putting them in front of your face and you're like, no, thank you. And then their face drifts in front of head and you go over here and there they are again. <laughs> Stop ducking. <laughs> I think it's probably time to pay attention. Don't push that person's face out of your mind right now. <sighs> what is it that God is asking of you? I can't tell you. Maybe it's exactly like one of these stories. Maybe it's just an offshoot that's inspired by these stories. But I'm going to encourage you, because we're going to take communion together, to ponder, to reflect, to pray, and even to commit to some course of action that you'll take before you go to bed tonight. Regardless of your response to this particular text, our response to hearing the word of God read and proclaimed at Artisan is always to come to the table of the Lord. And so I'm going to invite each of you, if you'd like, to come and partake of the sacrament of Holy Communion. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.